Did you know that without a fixed point of reference of some kind, people who get lost in a desert or in a forest or in unfamiliar territory will almost always end up walking in circles every time. Studies have been done on this phenomenon. I was reading an article recently that was published a couple of years ago in the National Geographic magazine. It says that if people don't have the sun, if they don't have the moon, if they don't have some fixed object like a tower and they get lost and cannot see, particularly in cloudy conditions or dark conditions, they will end up veering off of a straight line every single time. I've told you the story, I think, in recent months about Thomas Blatt, who was a prisoner at the Sobibor concentration camp during World War II. They managed a spectacular escape, and he and a couple of colleagues, they were just uh, teenagers or in their early 20s at the time, managed to escape from the camp and, and make their way into the dense forest that surrounded it. And for four days... They travel, sleeping during the day, covering themselves up with leaves and with forest debris, and then traveling best they could at night. For four long days, they traveled in the dense forest until one day they saw lights over the horizon and what appeared to be something of a bit of a skyline, and they edged closer and closer. Their hearts began to race, and they began to feel great excitement, indeed, even a sense of relief, thinking, finally, we have found a village, only to find that after four days and nights in the wilderness, they had returned basically to the front gate of the Sobibor concentration camp. And the same thing's likely to happen to you without a fixed point of reference. Most hikers that get lost end up within a mile of the point from which they started, even after having walked for days and days, having lost their bearings in the wilderness. Have y'all ever lost your bearings in a spiritual wilderness before? How many people in the house this morning would say, there's been a time in my life where I have found myself in the wilderness feeling far from God? Would you give that testimony today? I think most of us would. You feel like you're running on a treadmill, expending all this energy, but never really going anywhere, never really accomplishing anything in your life, never really feeling that you're making forward progress, a forward momentum. May I make a statement this morning, that was the children of Israel. Not for four days in the wilderness, brothers and sisters, but for 40 years, constantly on the move, but never really going anywhere at all, just biding time, never making any significant difference. You know, most of the time in the wilderness, what they did, the only thing uh, that they did that could even close, closely be defined as productive was to argue and to bicker and to pine about going back to slavery because they thought that by that stage in their life, slavery would be better than walking in circles in the wilderness. Have you ever been in the wilderness feeling like you were doing nothing but walking in circles aimlessly and unproductively? That was the children of Israel. But that time in the wilderness did serve at least one productive purpose. 
that time in the wilderness taught those children of Israel some things about God that I don't think they would have ever learned otherwise. There is a God of the wilderness and the book of Deuteronomy exists for us in our Bibles in large part to paint a lovely picture of the majesty and the power and the sovereignty, indeed even the greatness of God himself. He is a God of the wilderness who sometimes sends his people into the wilderness, but he's a God, thank God, who refuses to leave his people in the wilderness. And what do we wanna learn about this God of the wilderness? In those times that we, like the children of Israel, find ourselves walking in circles in a dry and barren land. Well, I'm gonna give you four things this morning, if you're a note taker, that I want you to jot down today that we can learn about God in those inevitable times that we find ourselves walking in circles in a dry, dusty, barren land. The first is that in the wilderness, we find that God is so faithful to demonstrate his mercy. Aren't you thankful that we serve a God of mercy and a God of grace? A God who deals with us according to his loving kindness <clears throat> rather than acting toward us, giving us everything we deserve. The first three and a half chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, you'll recall, is a historical sermon given by Moses. It's a sermon that captures the past, the immediate past in the life of the children of Israel. It looks back over the preceding 40 years of the history of Israel from the time that God delivered them from Egyptian bondage up to the time that Moses is in fact giving this very sermon. And Moses has recounted how they as a people ended up in the wilderness in the first place. And he talks about how long they had spent there. And in this passage of scripture, he's going to remind them of some things that God had done for them while they were there. He says, for example, in Deuteronomy 2 and verse 2, then the Lord said to me, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northwards. In other words, it's time to quit walking in circles and it's time to start moving forward again. This language is very familiar to language that we've already seen back 38 years previous when the children of Israel had been in camp for a couple of years or so at the base of Sinai. And they had heard from God and they had seen visions of God in smoke and fire. And God said, you have been at this mountain long enough. Now it's time to start moving forward. And now 38 years later, as they'd been walking in the wilderness as a judicial sentence for their disobedience before a holy God, our Lord comes again and says, it's time to quit walking in circles and it's time to start moving forward again. That's just another way of saying God was not finished with his people, amen. And God is not finished with you or me either. Even when our disobedience takes us directly into a hot, barren, dusty, dry land. Now for Israel, that path forward was a very slow path, primarily because they were waiting on an entire generation to die in the desert. Now that sounds kind of morbid, doesn't it? But it's absolutely true. Because of the faithlessness of the people, God says no one except Joshua and Caleb from this present generation will ever step foot in the land that I have promised you. And so part of that 40 years of wandering in the desert 
was waiting for an entire generation to die off before God could be faithful to his promise and take a second generation into the land. I mean, can you imagine that? You go over to the Sinai Desert today and just wander around for a period of time and underneath your feet are tens of thousands, dare I say it, maybe even hundreds of thousands of burial spots in the desert that you'll never see with your naked eye, but thousands of the people of God are buried there in the desert because of God's judgment on a disobedient people. But here's what's beautiful. While God had judged his people, God had never abandoned his people. The God of the wilderness was with them even as they walked in punishment of their disobedience. And not only was God present with them, God was merciful to them and God was generous with them. And that's important because whenever you and I find ourselves in the wilderness, what we need, at least what I need when I find myself in a bad place, what I need more than anything else is assurance. I just need to know God has not abandoned me. I need to know that God is with me. I need to know God is there. It's like the story of Hagar in the book of Genesis. Hagar was Sarah's slave girl, her handmaiden, Sarah, of course, being the wife of Abraham. And Hagar, of course, was the slave girl that Abraham decided to go his own way with in order to speed up God's promise to make a great nation to him. And Ishmael was born. But like Hagar, that slave girl of Abraham and Sarah, she ended up fleeing into the wilderness because she felt hostility from Sarah. She went into the wilderness because of Sarah's harsh treatment of her. And the Bible says that while she was wandering in the wilderness, she stopped for a drink by a spring of water. Can I say it? In a dry desert, a spring of water is a merciful grace gift of a holy God. And God allows her to stop and refresh her body. And then God shows up in the form of an angelic being and speaks a word to her directly, refreshing not only her body, but refreshing her very spirit, her very soul, and he gives her a word of instruction and a word of promise. You go back. Everything's gonna be all right because I will be with you and I have a plan for you. And having her spirit refreshed by this appearance of the Lord and as her body was refreshed by the water is a gift from the Lord. The Bible says there in the book of Genesis that Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, Elroy, you are a God who sees me. For she says truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Let me make a statement this morning. God may have sent the nation of Israel away into the desert because of their disobedience, but one thing we know from Scripture, he never took his eyes off of them. They never got lost in the desert. God always knew where they were, and God never stopped caring for them. Look at Deuteronomy 2 and verse 7. For the Lord your God has what? Say it out loud. Has blessed you in all the work of your hands, for he knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you have lacked nothing. Let's say that last sentence with me together. You have lacked nothing. And how true that was, because the God of the wilderness had not only guided them in the wilderness, 
God had given them manna from heaven to feed them. God had given them water from a rock to quench their thirst. The Bible says in the book of Numbers, God had given them quail that was stacked up so deep it was literally coming out of their nostrils. That's a generous, gracious, giving God even to a disobedient people. Listen, let me say it this morning. God is with us in the wilderness. 12 times in the Bible, this statement is made in some form. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The God of the wilderness is a loving, merciful, gracious God. And aren't you thankful for it this morning? Would you say amen? The second thing that I want us to notice here is that in the wilderness, God demonstrates not only his mercy, he demonstrates his guidance. God still takes us by the hand, even in our times of disobedience. In the wilderness, God may seem silent. And there's been times that God just seems a million miles away, so to speak. But even though God may seem silent, God never goes dark, amen. In Israel or for Israel, God was constantly speaking. You can see this reflected <clears throat> all throughout the book of Numbers. And you see it reflected here, especially when it comes to Moses. God has always got a pipeline to the leader of the people. For Israel, he was constantly guiding. God speaks yet again here in Deuteronomy 2 and says, it's time to move forward. I mean, and what's interesting is that God doesn't take, the, when they start moving forward, when they quit walking in circles and start moving on a productive path, it's interesting to me, God doesn't take them back the same way that he did in the first generation. Now remember, God had encamped them some 38 years earlier at a place called Kadesh Barnea. Do you all remember that? And that's just south of the nation of Israel. They just are skirting right up the coast till they get to the southern part or the northern part of the Sinai Desert, the southern part of what is modern day Israel. But God doesn't take them back the same way. Maybe it's because of the bad memory. We're not really told why he doesn't stage them just like he did earlier. Probably because it was bad memories. Probably it's because it's a new generation and they just need to do it a different kind of way. I need to reveal myself to these people differently. But it's always interested me that it doesn't take them back the same route. This time he takes them around the Dead Sea. So not only are they moving northward in a straight line, they get to a point where they begin to move east and then northeast. And he takes them on the eastern side of the Jordan River, on the eastern perimeter of the Dead Sea. Now again, we're not told why God does it this way, but it surely would have required trust because it's a longer way. Because there are some lands and there are some people groups that they're going to have to deal with going this way that they never would have had to have dealt with had they gone the original way of the first generation. So the people are gonna to have to trust him in an even greater way, I think, this time around. And regarding these people groups, there are three of them that they're going to have to encounter before they ever even try to get into the promised land. Look with me at verse 4. Command the people, <clears throat> you are about to pass through the territory of your brothers. In other words, uh, they're not Israelis like these people are Israelis, but they've got a bit of blood connection to these three people groups. 
and that's why they're called brothers. You're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, the Edomites, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of your foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. And then look at verse nine. And the Lord said to me, do not harass who? Say it out loud. Moab, or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot, the nephew of Abraham, for a possession. Verse 19, and when you approach the territory of the people of, say it out loud, Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot, for possession. Now, let's just stop there for a moment and let me just say that these instructions, again, we're talking to a merciful, about a merciful God who is providing information, speaking to his people and providing critical guidance to his people that he loves even in the face of their disobedience. And this represents for these people something of a test of faith because of what God tells Israel here first and foremost that they're not to do with these three groups of people. The Edomites, who are the descendants of Esau, the Moabites, who are the descendants of Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, and then the Ammonites, who are also the descendants of Lot, but through one of the daughters of Lot. And the instructions are perfectly clear. Don't mess with these people. Don't fool with them. Don't pick a fight with them. Don't try to conquer them. Don't try to take their lands. If you need supplies, Offer to buy them with silver. Take nothing from them. Purchase if you need to. And the reason for these commands was that God was once again being a God who was true to his word. God had promised these lands to the descendants of these major people uh, that God had dealt with in generations past. He'd promised as an inheritance these lands to these people. And God is a God who always fully intends to keep his promises. That was true then, and God, who has made countless numbers of promises to you and me, is a God who can always be trusted to keep his word. Even though these people were not worshipers of the one true God. How about that? These were people who at best tried to include the God of Abraham alongside other gods that they worshiped. And so they were idolaters, and yet God had made a promise even to an idolatrous group of people, and he intended to keep it. And this is a beautiful picture. You know what this is a picture of? For God so loved the world. That's what it's a picture of. It's a reminder to us, even in the first five books of the Bible, that God has a treasured possession whose name is Israel, but that God loved even the pagan neighbors of Israel that God is the creator of all humanity. He's a sovereign Lord over all nations and all peoples. And God has a plan that's at work. And he wants to use Israel as a lighthouse. He always wants to use his people, whether it be Israel then or his church today, as a lighthouse to be a blessing to people who at the present time don't even acknowledge God. 
They don't even worship God. And yet, because God had made promises to these three groups of people, it's a testimony that God still has room for others. He still has a heart for these people to know him and to be known by him. And our God is a God who will show mercy to whomever he chooses to show mercy, even when we don't understand it. There are times we look at people and through the eyes of the hardness of our heart, we have a hard time loving them. And truth be told, we can't figure out why God would love them in the first place. And yet the reality is God loves people. And God wants to see people come to a knowledge of the truth. The larger point for us today is this concept of guidance. What I want you to know from this passage this morning is that God will guide you with pinpoint accuracy through the wilderness. It may not be with a pillar of cloud by day and it may not be with a pillar of fire by night. Today, you know how God will guide you through this book right here, amen. God will guide you through his word with pinpoint accuracy. And if you're a child of God who knows God, even though you find yourself because of your own disobedience in a wilderness experience, you still carry the Holy Spirit of God with you. And God will speak to you by that spirit. God speaks to us today by his word. God speaks to us by his spirit. There are even other ways that God speaks to us, but those two principally, and they're far more accurate than even the GPS on your telephone, amen. I was driving in Miami, Florida not long ago. That's a crazy place to drive. I do not recommend it. Though God loves the people of Miami, Florida. Say amen this morning. It's a hard place to drive. I was going to the airport and I'd allotted just enough time to get there and to get through security and all of that. My GPS told me get off at exit 362A and I got to 362A and there it was, 362A with a concrete barricade right in front of the exit. The side of the interstate I was on was moving freely. The other side, bumper to bumper for miles. And the airport is back right over here because I just passed the exit to it that I couldn't get off of. And the G GPS was saying, you need to get off at the next exit and turn around. And by the time I did, I got caught up in that bumper to bumper rush hour traffic coming back the other way. Finally got to the airport, running through that airport like the old Hertz commercials. Man, I was jumping over people, jumping over luggage. Y'all didn't know I could run the 40-yard dash in 4.35, but I can when I need to. Sometimes the GPS throw you for a loop, but God's Word never will because God speaks with pinpoint accuracy, and He does that here. He's guiding His people with specific directions because He is a God of grace and mercy, and it's a way that's designed to keep these people safe on the one hand, and then to honor his promises to these other people on the other hand. Psalm 78, 52, then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. Our God in the wilderness is a God of mercy, a God of generosity, he is a God who guides. But then notice third, that in the wilderness, God also demonstrates his power. Our God is a powerful, mighty God. And for that, I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful this morning that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. I'm glad today 
that I serve a risen Savior who is seated in a position of power and might and authority at the right hand of God. A Savior who has the capacity to put all enemies under his feet, who has the capacity to conquer everything that is evil and stands against the righteousness of God, and one day will conquer even the greatest of all enemies, which is the enemy of death. Here in the wilderness, having told his people what not to do, God now turns and tells them what they are to do. And remember, his people, even at this time in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, they're still in the wilderness. This is the latter stages of their being in the wilderness, but they're still in the wilderness. They're not in the promised land yet. But it's what's about to happen that's the equivalent of the clouds breaking and the sunlight beginning to shine through in their time in the wilderness. And all of it due to the mighty power of God. They didn't bring it about. They were powerless walking in circles with no apparent point of spiritual reference. But the mighty power of God shows up and look at verse uh, 24 of Deuteronomy 2 at what God does. Having successfully skirted around the lands that they were not to touch, God says to them in verse 24, rise up, set out on your journey and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hands Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. And then notice the beginning of Deuteronomy 3. Then we turned and went up <clears throat> the way of Bashan, and Og. The king of Bashan came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrai. Verse 11, for only Og the king of Bashan was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. It is not in Rabbah of the, or is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth, according to the common Cubit. Now, why are those two little paragraphs important? Well, they're important <clears throat> because what we have are two kingdoms. The kingdom of Heshbon, led by its king Sihon, which is at the southern end of the Jordan River, right at the northern tip of the Dead Sea. So think at the very southern end of modern-day Israel. Remember, they're on the, what today is the Jordan side, not the Israeli side, where the Promised Land was. The king of Heshbon ruled there at the southern end, uh, right around the top of the Dead Sea. And then there's the secondly, the kingdom of Bashan, who was all the way, way to the north of modern day Israel. Again, on the Jordan side, near Mount Hermon, at the mouth of the Jordan River. So you got these two kingdoms. Y'all still with me? Say amen. amen. You got one at the place where the Jordan empties into the Dead Sea, and you got one at the place where is fairly close to the mouth of the Jordan River, one at the top of the land that they would eventually conquer, the other at the southern end of the land they would originally conquer. Bashan was a great kingdom led by its king, the great and powerful Og, not Oz, but Og, 
who the Bible says was one of the Rephaim, one of the last remaining, what scholars call aboriginal giants in the land. Og was Goliath before Goliath was cool, amen. He's a big boy. In fact, there's that iron bed that we just read about measured in cubits, but if you convert that to feet, that bed was 13 and a half foot long by six foot wide. That's a mighty big king. Can you say amen today? And so this uh, is part of the reason why God is speaking to them directly and guiding them directly because he's trying to build trust in them, a trust that they would need because it's time to fight again. This is a pre-invasion military campaign. And what it's designed by God to do, I think, is to position the people of Israel at two critically important strategic points that would be necessary when it came time for them to finally cross the Jordan under the leadership of Joshua and take the promised lands. That makes sense this morning? Y'all with me say amen. Now, it's what happens at that point that's really important. Join me now in Deuteronomy 2 and verse 32. Then Sihon came out against us. Now we're in the southern campaign. Sihon came up against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people, and we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to deliverance, or to destruction rather, every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. And then Deuteronomy 3 and 3. So the Lord our God gave our hand are into our hand, Og also, king of Bashan, there in the north country, and all his people. And we struck him down until he had no survivor left. Now remember, what are we talking about? The God of the wilderness is a God who demonstrates power even to people who are still in the wilderness as the nation of Israel surely was. Now, I'm well aware that it's that leaving no survivors thing that you want to know about this morning. Uh-huh, you hear that little murmur going on all over the house this morning? That's what you want to know about. Why does God give these commands to completely destroy the population? I mean, we don't have a problem with the old folks. What about those kids, right? That's what most people think. What about those children? What about all this destruction in these military Campaign. Why does God always say completely destroy the people? Well, he doesn't always. We just saw three groups of people that he told not to be touched, even though they're enemies of God. But in these two cases, as well as in many cases that you'll read about in the book of Joshua when it comes time to go into the promised land and reallocate the land in the name of God and in the name of Israel, he surely does. And we want to know why because it doesn't set well. And you know what? I have an answer to that question. I'm just not gonna give it to you today because <laughs> I don't have time. And part of the reason too is, is that Moses is gonna deal with this particular issue in greater detail when we get to Deuteronomy chapter seven. 
So if you don't mind, because we're running out of time and you're probably running out of patience if I went into it today, I'm gonna wait till we get to Deuteronomy 7 and I'm gonna give you the, what I think is the very clear answer in terms of why God does this. Because it's one of the biggest impediments that people who have a modicum of understanding of, about the Bible often throw back in the face of a witnessing Christian as to why they will not submit to the leadership of God and follow him. For today, what I want us to notice is this incredible power of God that's demonstrated to Israel and through Israel, even though they're still in the wilderness. I mean, this is the point where this gracious God makes it very clear. Once you have done due diligence in conquering these two kingdoms, this will be the beginning point of me harnessing this incredible reputation of the fighting force of the nation of Israel that will put the very fear of God into the very nations that you're going to need to vanquish in order to take and appropriate the land. So by the time that the nation of Israel does cross the Jordan River, by the time they get to Jericho, you'll see the story in Joshua 2 of those spies encountering the prostitute named Rahab, where she tells the Israeli spies in Joshua 2 and 10, we have heard what you did to the two kings beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And the fear of Israel has fallen upon us. God is always at work in and through the lives of his people to accomplish amazing things through his people that they can't even begin to understand. God had his reasons and the reasons are becoming more clear. I love the passage in Jeremiah 33, 3, where the prophet says, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which you do not know. Our God is mighty to save. Our God is mighty to deliver. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. The question is, do you trust God? Do you trust God? And will you obey God when God says, don't do this and be careful to do that even in the face? of giant obstacles. There's a final thing I want you to notice, and it's kind of a summary thing, that is in the wilderness, God demonstrates not only his mercy, his generosity, his guidance and his power, but in the wilderness, God demonstrates his sovereignty, his sovereignty. And that's kind of a comprehensive summary of the passage. Because all through this passage, of Deuteronomy 2 and the first half of Deuteronomy 3, the God of the wilderness is constantly active and the God of the wilderness is always in control. You see it in God's merciful care for his people in the worst of times. You see it in God's distribution of the land to peoples that by his sovereign declaration, he says, this is their land and it is not yours. Keep your hands off this group, conquer and displace 
that group. You see the sovereignty of God and how God works specifically through the lives of these two Amorite kings. Look at Deuteronomy 2 and verse 30. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. That right there is what we call the sovereignty of God. Or notice Deuteronomy 3, beginning in verse 1. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. But the Lord said to me, do not fear him. This guy's 13 foot tall. Don't be afraid of him, for I have what? Given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. Ajith Fernando writes, God works ahead of our work to prepare the way for our work. And I think that's a great statement. And the way God does it here is by hardening the heart of the king. In much the same way, you remember, he hardened the heart of Pharaoh when it came time to deliver his people. And I know there's more than a shade of mystery there because the Bible also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And one thing I know from the teaching of scripture is the fact that because of his sin, Sihon's heart was already hardened toward God. And so which is it? Did those kings harden their heart against God or did God harden their heart? The answer to the question is what? Yes, that's right. And so there's mystery there. But the point is, God is at work. And can I say it this morning? God is always at work. Ours is a God that never slumbers, a God that never sleeps, a God that's always active, a God who knows your name, a God who knows your address, a God who has even the number of hairs on your head quantified, a God who is working for your very best. And that's what he's doing here. He's accomplishing his plan for his people to get them to a particular place at a particular time for a particular purpose. And no territorial ruler was powerful enough to stop the all-powerful God. To paraphrase the words of Joseph, those enemies intended to harm us, but God intended it for what? for good, that's right. Would you agree with me this morning that the wilderness is a dangerous, even deadly, threatening kind of place? But the thing about the wilderness is that it can be a place of tremendous growth. When Moses had to leave Egypt because he had committed murder, God led him where? Into the wilderness where he would spend the next 40 years of his life as an associate shepherd to his father-in-law Jethro. And little did Moses know that God was with him the whole time he was in the desert in that lowly menial position 
working on him and developing him so that he would one day become the greatest leader that the nation of Israel has ever known. The wilderness can be a place of tremendous growth. If we never forget that God is with us, that he's a sovereign God who shows mercy, who gives guidance, who demonstrates power to those who are willing to trust him. So my brothers and sisters, whenever you find yourself walking in circles in a dry, barren land, go ahead and cry for a little while, shed those tears, but never, never, never despair because God is always active and at just the right time, our God is able and has the power and most certainly will deliver you to a better place. I say that this morning because that's the very word of God and all God's people together said, and amen, together, amen.